Good morning, church. Good to see you today. Happy New Year. God is good and at work and his people. What a joy it is to be here with you today. Will you grab your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of Ephesians? You'll find it in the New Testament, towards the back of your Bible. Today we pick up our sermon series through this wonderful letter in chapter 2. After our December break, as we focused on the advent of Christ, um, what a joy it is to be together again in the new year. Uh, The first ten verses of this chapter is truly one of the most precious and clear proclamations of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in all of Holy Scripture. We are at a, a very special place, church, in this text this morning and in the coming weeks, how I pray that our study of these vitally important words are motivational, are nourishment for your soul, an inspiration to your steadfast praise of God and bold testimony of Christ's work on behalf of undeserving sinners. Quickly, before we jump into chapter 2 this morning, I want to remind us of the foundation of the Apostle Paul that he laid in Ephesians chapter 1 as he spoke to the saints in Ephesus and the surrounding regions as he wrote this letter. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read that Paul is writing to the saved saints, to his saved brothers and sisters in Christ, He's highlighting what it means to be a Christian and how God ordained it to be so. Sinclair Ferguson describes Paul's words in the opening chapter of Ephesians this way. It's like a waterfall pouring from the lips of Paul as he tries to express the wonderful privileges of being a Christian. The wonderful privileges of being a Christian. In chapter 1, we're introduced to the, the great theme of God's amazing grace to the riches of His grace that have been lavished upon us who are in Christ. In chapter 1, Paul begins with praise for God, for every spiritual blessing for His people, and then he keeps adding phrase upon phrase and doctrine upon doctrine as he lists their blessings and benefits to us. In verse 3-14, through we see the, the plan of salvation and how it begins in the mind of Christ before anything else existed, and how He perfectly carried it throughout time, and how He will bring it to its perfect and grand conclusion as He ushers us into eternity. It is on the heels of these bold and beautiful proclamations of God's gracious and eternal plan to work to save undeserving sinners that now we turn to chapter 2 where Paul slows to to mine down into mankind's spiritual, lifeless condition prior to God's gracious intervention to give saving faith and new birth unto a life lived for the glory of God. Another way to see the arc of Paul's aim in the first two chapters of this letter is chapter 1 gives us the past, present, and future of God's eternal plan of redemption. 
Chapter 2 gives us the past, present, and future of the people that God chooses to graciously redeem. The first area of emphasis being the past reality of those God has saved. This is a deep and sobering look, not only at our former state prior to Christ, but into our current state of all who stand, into the current state of all who stand opposed to Jesus, substitutionary atonement and lordship for their lives. Sometimes we like watching home movies or looking at family pictures, or reading old letters from our past or generations gone by. Maybe a a love and a look at our American heritage, or the cultures from which you come from. And we can be so fond of these things. These these memories of our younger years can bring a a high nostalgia uh, for things that, that, that we once got to be part of. Or, or things that we're from. But, but Paul's look at our former condition in the early verses of chapter 2, our condition before becoming a follower of Christ, it's not nostalgic in the least. It's not fond memories of days gone by. It is a bleak, dire, sad, despairing view of who mankind is apart from Christ in our sin. It is a look at our our ultimate reality apart from Christ. A lifeless state within physical lives. Our wicked allegiances. Our selfish priorities. where Where we really stand before a holy God. The eternal wages do us for our sin. Church, I know that many of you have studied this passage a lot in your Christian journey. You you may be, in spending many years with me, have heard me teach on these passages many times. But I encourage you, lean in and see today and in the coming weeks the depth and the width of our condition because of sin, our allegiance to the devil, our desperation for a Savior, the only one full of grace and truth. Look with me. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to read all of verse 1 through 10. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. Amen? Amen. See with me the very first part of verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul says, and. It means that there is an immediate connection to what is about to be said, to what was just said. Ephesians chapter 1, 19 through 23 in particular says, What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Church, the power of God, the power that God uses to raise Christ from the grave and for Christ to rule and be glorified is the power that God uses to raise us from the grave of our spiritual death and to purpose us to good works that glorify God now and forever. So when Paul says, and, then going into what God has done for saved sinners, we must see that this is only because of what God has done in Christ on our behalf. Without the victorious work of Christ on our behalf, without the plan of God to send His only Son to die in our place and to conquer the grave, we would have no hope for spiritual resurrection and illumination. Praise God. That his purpose from before time was to save his undeserving people. That includes all of us who have died to ourselves and trusted our lives to Christ. Praise God that the work of God for the glory of, of Christ who is resurrected from the grave doesn't stop with Christ's resurrection, but with ours. All those whom God preordained to come and to save Church, our salvation is not flippant. It's, it's not kind of important. When we have a right understanding of our dead and damned condition prior to God's gracious work to save us, it sends us to a new place of praise and of testimony. This is Paul's emphasis in the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2. This is our focus this morning as we begin to slowly walk through this amazing testimony of amazing grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 is as far as we'll go today. Nine words. Look with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. When Paul says, you were dead, He's not saying you were like walking dead. He's not a zombie fan. He's not promoting zombies. He's not saying that his hearers were physically dead, as in not physically living. We know this because they are living. He's writing to them. Human beings who breathe, who walk, who eat, who talk. They made daily choices. They were physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. 
we were dead in the spiritual sense, in the ultimate sense, because life is ultimately found in God. For mankind, spiritual life is only found with God, and spiritual death is a state of alienation from the Holy God because of our sin. True spiritual life, therefore, includes holiness, love, lasting joy, and purpose. Whereas spiritual death includes corruption, selfishness, misery, alienation, and helplessness. Those who are dead or who remain dead in sin are secluded from all that is true blessedness. They're beyond the reach of self-revival or redemption or help from fallen man, for they are spiritually dead and desperate for a revival from the only one who is able to give them new birth and redemption, God himself. What is interesting is that much of fallen man does not agree with the idea that those outside of Christ are spiritually dead. After all, they're able to think about God, they're able to read about God, they're able to consider God, they can accept or deny that He has clearly made Himself known to all of mankind as Romans 1 makes clear. So for many, their experiences and their perspective finds contention with the biblical teaching that they are truly and fully spiritually dead. But self-deception, self-reasoning, self-proclaimed wisdom is a trait of fallen man. There are so many ways our mind and our fleshly desires are wicked and deceive us. We are desperate for a holistic and dependent leaning on God's Word as He reveals these things to us. Jeremiah said it well. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So our sinful and deceived perception of ourselves is truly insufficient. Just as the work of a skilled mortician who can present a dead person's body in such a way to give the impression of life, of color, of vibrant skin, nice hair and clothes, even a familiar and relaxed pose. Maybe not standing up. (laughs) But none of this presentation or self-produced belief that the person is well and alive makes them alive. No, they are dead. Not truly alive. No true life is present. No communication possible. It is the same for those apart from Christ. Those who are still in Adam. Those still in their sin. They are not connected to or restored to the only one who is spiritual life, God himself. They are separated, alienated, and spiritually dead. This is an essential reality we must understand. Those who are not yet saved must understand their condition and state apart from God so that if God wills, they can confess their sin and turn to God in belief and devotion. 
Those who are saved and set free must rightly understand our previous condition as an ongoing means of praise for all that God did to save us and overcome our depth of lostness. It also inspires us to bold testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we prepare to present the good news of grace and Jesus' work on behalf of undeserving sinners. To do this, we must first present the reality of the separation and spiritual death an unrepentant sinner is in, so that they rightly and fully see their need for a Savior, if God wills. Church, we must understand that in our sin, we are spiritually dead, not sick. Paul says this really well, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There are two major realities Scripture speaks of when related to Adam's fall that earns a spiritual death as a result of Adam's sin. The first is we are all conceived having a fallen nature. Therefore, we are born sinful. We are born, we are conceived spiritually dead. We call this original sin. Original sin is something inherent in us. It is a morally ruined character. Not a morally sick character, ruined. When Adam sinned, his inner nature was transformed by his sin of rebellion, bringing him to spiritual death and depravity, which would be passed on to all who would come after him. Certainly, we inherit genetic or physical characteristics from our parents, so also we inherit our sinful nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve, passed on through our birth parents. And so Adam, and so through Adam, the inherent inclination to sin enters the human race. Human beings become sinners by nature. The original sin that we are born with manifests itself in our lives into actual sins, the the actions, the thoughts, the feelings we have that violate God's law and commands. Consider it this way. Due to Adam's failure, mankind didn't fall because we sinned. Rather, we sin because each of us are fallen. Because we are spiritually dead. No one outside of Christ is righteous. Romans 3, 10-12 None is righteous. No, not one. None. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Second, the guilt of Adam's sin is credited not just to Adam himself, but to all of us. We are regarded as having sinned in Adam, and hence as deserving the same punishment. This is imputed sin. Used in both financial and legal settings, the Greek word translated imputed means to take something that belongs to someone and credit it to another's account. By God's decree, Adam acted as the representative of the entire human race. 
with the test that God set before Adam and Eve. He was testing the whole of mankind. Adam stands as the head of the human race. He's placed in the garden to act not only for himself, but for also for all who would come from him. Just as a federal government has a chief spokesman who is the head of the nation, so Adam was the federal head of mankind. This is called federal headship. The chief idea of federal headship is that when Adam sinned, it was counted for all of us. His fall is our fall. When when God punished Adam by taking away his original righteousness, we were all likewise punished. The curse of the fall affects all of mankind, born of man and woman. Adam's choice to sin means we are brought forth under the penalty of that sin. His sin is imputed, credited to us. So not only have we received spiritually dead natures, because of Adam's original sin, but we also are regarded as having sinned in Adam such as that we are guilty of the act because of imputed sin and therefore cursed with the penalty of spiritual death, which is separation from God, who is spiritual life. The problem that is linked with so much misunderstanding on this topic is that our, in our sin, mankind is deceived to think that there is a way we can save ourselves. While many believe that we may indeed require divine assistance, perhaps God will show us the way, or even send a messenger to lead us back, in the end, the belief is mankind can follow the plan or do their part to pull it off. In this line of thinking, mankind falls headlong in one of the greatest heresies of church history, the heresy of Pelagianism. Pelagianism is named after Pelagius, a a monk who lived in the late 300s, early 400s AD. In Pelagianism, the, the teaching is that Adam's sin is not imputed to us, nor is Christ's righteousness. I don't have time to get into it, but I'll just quickly make the point. I've made it before. If you don't like or reject the idea of imputed sin, then how is the imputation of Christ's righteousness laid upon you for salvation to be given? It's the very same vehicle by which we are saved, church, in Christ's perfection. Pelagianism teaches in short synopsis man's will or natural state is morally neutral and therefore we are free to choose for god or against god essentially what plagianism teaches is adam was simply a bad example and not the representative in whom we stand guilty similarly it teaches that christ is a good example not the representative in whom we stand righteous It is the idea that I'm able to follow Christ, WWJD, instead of being totally dependent on Christ at work in and through me. This is not what Scripture teaches. Now a slight tweak to Pelagianism is semi-Pelagianism. 
man's will or natural state is morally sick. So not neutral, but sick, but still capable of denying or choosing God, making grace unnecessary. This is simply not the teaching of Scripture, church, nor what Paul means here in Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. It is essential that we see that those who are outside of Christ, we see them for who they really are, for who we really were prior to salvation in Christ. Dead in our sin, not just sick in sin. A helpful analogy for this to consider is two kinds of people that we can find in hospitals. The first, hospitals have really sick people in them. Their sickness is killing them, and they need help. So the doctor proclaims to them a remedy or prescription, and in their own power, they can cooperate with the doctor by choosing to take the remedy. Because of the power of the medicine or practices the doctor prescribes, coupled with the patient's free choice to initiate the remedy, the patient is healed and can leave the hospital with a renewed lease on life. There's another kind of person found often in hospitals, in a different wing. Hospitals, many hospitals have morgues full of dead people. The condition of all people in the morgue is the same. They are dead. If a doctor were to walk into the morgue and proclaim a remedy to help the dead person, it would not work. Why? Because no matter how powerful the remedy, the dead person could not take it. They are dead. And dead people can't do anything. The only way a dead person is to find life again is if someone miraculously gives the person new life. The sad reality is far too many Christians hold to the unbiblical view that mankind is spiritually sick and not dead. Semi-Pelagianism is sadly all too popular of a belief and held to and taught in too many modern churches or held to by too many misled or misunderstood Christians. In the 1996 Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, an important statement was written to right the ship of this gross heresy. Part of that statement included these words. Unwarranted confidence in human ability is a product of fallen human nature. The false confidence, this false confidence now fills the evangelical world from the self-esteem gospel to the health and wealth gospel from those who have transformed the gospel into a product to be sold and sinners into customers who want to buy. What does this mean practically for our loved ones who are apart from Christ? The Lord, they are the Lord of their own lives and still dead in their sin. Hear me clearly. It means they don't just need a right remedy a right testimony, a right speaker or church or influence or circumstances to happen to them. Things we often kind of get caught up in putting too much hope in. They're not sick in sin waiting for just the right circumstances. They are dead in sin waiting for God to regenerate them if He so wills. This means they need not seek out trick ponies, perfect circumstances by which they will wake up, stand up on their own, and choose Jesus. 
No, they need God to give them spiritual new birth. They need to be revived. They need the holy and divine hand of God to give them regeneration. To give them, as Scripture says, ears to hear and eyes to see. And only then will they repent and believe in the gospel that has been preached or testified to them. Should we encourage them to attend biblically sound churches? Should we testify the truth of God to them? Absolutely. If, they are, if not, that they are hearing lies, the lies of the world or the false teaching that is not the truth of God. But hear me clearly. Our hope is not in the testimony or in the preaching. These things are flawed as, human, as we humans are a part of them. Our hope is in God who is perfect, who is the only one who gives life to that which is dead. Our trust is in God alone. Amen? Ask King David, said well in the psalm, salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 3.8. In Psalm 62.1 he says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. For God Himself declares in Isaiah 43.11, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Now let's mind down into what Paul says here in verse 1 further by looking closer at what makes us spiritually dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. First, what is our trespasses? At its core, it is sin. But a more analytic view is helpful. So let's mind down into it. To trespass is to cross a forbidden boundary. It is our rebellious disregard for God's perfect law and declaration of war against the sovereign God. To trespass against His perfection, against His sovereign decrees, is war against the sovereign God. Our trespasses are our transgressions another word we see in scripture a lot a transgression is an act that goes against the law rule or code of conduct it is an offense these are words used in holy scripture to define the greatest trespass of all the greatest boundary we could cross in this life is not one of a foreign government or a national monument it is against god's holy standard the greatest transgression is not against the Constitution or any other royal command of some ruling nation. It is against the perfect law of God. Our Word of Truth Catechism defines it this way. Question 33, what is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Sin is any disobedience in heart or deed to God's perfect law and commands. Oh, how we need to see the depth of our offense because of our sin. Theologians of old have helped us to see this when they say that sin is cosmic treason. Meaning even the slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator 
seriously dishonors the Creator's holiness, His glory, His righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us. It is an act of treason against the cosmic king. Hear James' word, words in, in James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. This is because God's holiness is the standard and is perfect. We are guilty of climbing into a thinking, a, a, a rationalizing, where we look at fellow man and we go, this was a good person. If they've broken the slightest of one part of it, they're guilty of breaking all of it. This is because God's holiness is the standard. And it is perfect. The standard is not other men. It is God alone. Sin is falling short. It is missing the mark. To see the, the vile, evil, and wickedness of our sin, we have to have a right view of the mark. The standard is the holy and eternal God. When contemplating how you are doing in this life, we grossly are mistaken to compare ourselves to each other, to compare our kids to other kids. The mark is not how we stack up next to another person, but how we stack up next to the holy God. When we get the vastness and the absolute perfection of the holy God, we begin to understand that when we sin, we don't just miss the bullseye and get part of the target. We fall so short. We fall short of the entire target, and we end up on the ground. God's perfection is the standard. Oh, we're guilty of thinking of ourselves so much higher than we should. It is not until we understand who God is that we gain any real understanding of the seriousness of our sin. Not until we take God seriously will we ever take sin seriously. If we acknowledge the righteous character of God, then we, like the saints of old, will cover our mouths with our hands and repent in dust and ashes before Him. We will dive into Scripture. We will invite any layers of accountability. We will not self-justify. We will want to honor God, whatever it takes. At the heart of all sin is a lie. A lie that says to all of us in our sin, the act you are now doing, the desire or attitude you are now feeling is not very bad because there are so many more worse things. Not very bad because everyone else experiences the same things. Not very bad because you can't help it. Not very bad because there is no God. Or if that won't work, we climb into this idea that God knows that we're frail and weak. 
And so he will tolerate and pity our sin. These are often leaned into, held, professed, damnable lies. God is perfect. And there can be no compromise of his holiness to partner with, to tolerate the smallest sin. In 2 Chronicles 13, 9-12, we hear of the testimony of the moving of the Ark of the Covenant. It's being transported. The oxen that are pulling the cart stumbled. And a man named Uzzah reached out to catch the Ark, to take hold of it. But God was crystal clear that no one was to touch the ark or they would die. And so God struck him down right there and he died. When we don't hold the holy perfection of God rightly or highly enough, we're guilty of thinking that punishment like this appears to be extreme. Extreme because one could say that Uzzah was trying to do a good deed in not allowing the precious Ark of the Covenant to hit the ground. But it is not a matter of man's reasoning, but a matter of God's perfect and holy command on His creation. No matter how innocently it was done, touching the Ark was in direct violation of God's law and therefore was to result in death. This was a means of preserving the sense of the holiness of God before the people. Something not to be taken lightly, but held in the highest esteem. So Paul's point here is massive. We are spiritually separated from God. We are spiritually dead because of our trespasses and sins. The smallest sin is falling short of God's perfect standard. This is so sobering. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails to, in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Think about it with me. You can live your entire life perfectly, fail at one little thing, and be unworthy of life with God now and forever. Why? Because you fall short of the perfect and holy standard of of the glory of God. We can't on one hand say, that still feels so rough, but then over here in our Christendom say, with bold confidence, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. (laughs) That favorite verse is what this is saying. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not because of gross sin, because of one minor infraction, they fall short. See the impossible reality of our damnable sin. See what we deserve, see what we've earned. The wages of sin is death. We earn our wage is death, is separation from life, that is God, because of our sin. Romans 6.23 We should take all sins seriously and see that it earns us death and eternal separation from God. I mean, if there's ever an example of this, it is the first sin of mankind. 
Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit. In one side of looking at that, like we are guilty of looking at much sin, we want to reason. They ate a piece of fruit. It is on that single bite of fruit, mankind is cursed. Our culture does this all the time. We're guilty of saying it. We say what doesn't seem like a problem to me. We disregard the wisdom and the instruction of the Lord. We come up with our own narrative, our own rule book, our own scale. The sin that meant the fall and enslavement of the entire human race was the eating of a piece of fruit. Left alone, this sounds crazy. But in its context, it is absolutely right. This was a direct act of disobedience to what God declared they should not do. It is a big deal if you have a right view of God. With much of the sin we excuse or or things we struggle in, we need not a better view of why it's bad, but of who it offends and why God is worthy of our utter obedience and faithfulness. The thing we must stop doing is measuring sin by how we feel or think about it. We must start seeing these things in relationship to the Almighty Creator, sustainer, ruler of everything, who is perfect and the standard by which all things are measured. Ephesians 2 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. See with me that our being dead in sin meant righteous separation from that who is life, love, peace, and joy. God Himself. It means we are deserving of His righteous wrath, not just for a moment or a season, but now and forever. The offense of our sin against the eternal God is deserving of eternal punishment. We'll get to the reality of God's eternal wrath in coming sermons, but for today, see the sobering news that we find in just these nine words of verse 1. See our desperate need for a Redeemer. If we are dead in sin, we need to be revived, made alive. One can, only one can do this. We need our sin to be fully and finally paid for if we are going to have true and lasting fellowship with the Almighty Holy God. Fully and completely paid for. Only one can do that. Jesus. We need the grace of God. The choosing of God to breathe into our spiritually dead souls the power of the Holy Spirit, the awakening of a dead and stony heart into a heart of flesh. 
A heart tender to see and savor the grace of God to save any and especially a wretch like me. We need new birth. Old and gone theologian A.W. Pink says it well. The new birth is an imperative necessity because the natural man is altogether devoid of spiritual life. It is not that he is ignorant and needs instruction. It is not that he is feeble and needs invigorating. It is not that he is sickly and needs doctoring. His case is far, far worse. He is dead in trespasses and sins. There is no poetical figure of speech. It is a solemn reality. Little as it is perceived by the majority of people, the sinner is spiritually lifeless and needs quickening. He is a spiritual corpse and needs bringing from death unto life. He is a member of the old creation which is under the curse of God. And unless he is made, new, made of the new creation in Christ, he will lie under the curse to all eternity. What the natural man needs above everything else is life, divine life. As birth is the gateway to life, he must be born again and except he be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is final. We need new birth. Jesus teaches that it is impossible for man to turn to God without God's gracious intervention. He says in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. John six sixty three. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This is big, church. We have to hear the global and ongoing revelation of God's Word on this matter. When we think we can just believe anytime we want, we endorse and employ superficial belief. A belief that is in no way saving or sanctifying. If you can hear my voice today, understand with me that you must be born again. You must be made alive by God, given new birth, regenerated. This is the work of God alone. And here is, what, here is what is so amazing. Is that God has done this for many of us and He will do it for many more. Amen? Amen. This is the good news of the Word in our text today. Were. <laughs> and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Understand, Paul is writing to people who are in Christ. The opening of his letter, Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. They're no longer saints, no longer sinners, but now are saints. They're no longer aliens and enemies of God. They're now in Christ. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Were, past tense. Yes, it's true that we still sin at times, 
But we are no longer defined as sinners if we are in Christ. We're no longer bound to only sin as we were in our prior state. We have been freed from the power or the enslavement of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, Scripture says. The old self has been crucified with Christ. The Bible tells us that we who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb are washed clean. We're made holy in the eyes of God and as a result are called saints. Saints in the new covenant are those who have been cleansed and made holy by the perfect blood of Jesus in their place. Those who are therefore separated from the world and consecrated to God. The saints in Christ have been set apart by God. This is Paul's emphasis in the first half of this letter as it highlights the work of God to choose, save, and set apart his elect. He wants us to understand this church. What it means to be a saint in Jesus Christ. Christian, I ask you today, I've asked you before, I'll ask you again. Do you rightly see yourself as a saint if you belong to Jesus? Do you rightly see that sin does not have enslaving power over you anymore? That the power and righteousness of Christ is upon you to live for Him and glorify His name? Christian, do not be defined by the world or by your performance apart from Christ. Be defined by Christ. And Christ in you. You are a saint in Jesus Christ. I implore you, fellow Christians, servant of Jesus Christ, child of God, stop living out of your old identity in sin as a sinner. The life and death that you once lived so well. Sin is not your master anymore. Christ is. Therefore, live out of your new identity as a saint, sanctified and made new in the blood of Jesus Christ. I want to read you in closing the words of Paul in Romans 6. And then we'll pick up next week in verse 2. Romans 6 verse 1, What shall I say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Did you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we can no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died has been set free from sin. I'm sorry. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. For the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, 
to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time and this place. We thank you for the work that you're doing in and through us. We thank you for the clarity of your word, the joy it is to study your holy word, your written word, to get to preach it, to get to hear it, to be convicted by it, to be, to be given biblical clarity that like myself for many years, you have been bringing correction, moving away from what my experiences and my upbringing and unbiblical teaching that I sat under for, for many years brought forth to, to bring re- reformation and clarity, biblical clarity, to stand with historic theologians of old, to, to see in agreement what your word teaches through and through in these matters. That it would move us. It would, it would mobilize us. It would bring clarity to our testimony and passion to our praise. I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would live in Christ and no longer in sin. Help us to live in Christ and no longer in sin. We thank you for redemption, for forgiveness, and a new beginning. I pray for those who are not yet saved that they would repent and believe in your perfect time. Our friends, our family, guests in this place, our very children would do business with these most important things. Seek your face and honor you with our days. We love you. We worship you now in Jesus' name.